Well, this morning we're going to come to a, to a verse um, that we have come to in the past. It's, it's the verse that one commentator, I believe, has rightly said, no uninspired pen could ever have set down these words. Or we could put it this way, no uninspired author could ever have conceived of these words or thought to set these words down on paper. And of course the words that I'm speaking of are the words of John in chapter 1 when he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You, you, you do get the sense as you read those words that you are standing before something infinite. <laughs> something, it, 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 um, I don't know, something infinite. This morning then we, we do come to that great mystery. It's, it's a revealed mystery. It doesn't mean, it is mysterious to us but it has been revealed to us. But it is something we could not have known apart from revelation. Brothers and sisters, we would all be in the dark in more ways than one if God had not revealed this mystery to us. And this mystery then lies at the very heart in your handout of Christianity. I I want to point out that the mystery that lies at the heart of Christianity is not the baby in the manger. Uh, There was nothing more special or amazing about the baby in the manger than Jesus as a teenager or Jesus as an adult. So it, it's some, So we have to be careful about that. But what is central to Christianity is the incarnation and that Jesus did live as a true human being through all the stages uh, of human life, including infancy and in the womb even. In order though to rightly understand this mystery and the wonder of these words, we have to make sure that we truly understand the identity of the word. So the Bible begins with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's against that backdrop then that we listen to these words of John in the opening of his gospel. In the beginning, not God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, you can't be a Jew and be, or any, you know, anyone who knows the Bible and hear John start in the beginning and not already be quoting with him Genesis 1, right? In the beginning, God created, but no, in the beginning, was. And the contrast and the comparison is, is powerful. In the beginning was the word. The word already was in the beginning. There was never a time when the word was not. The existence of the word is from all eternity. In the beginning was the word. And then he continues, and the word was with God. Now there were whole sermons we preached on some of these words, but this morning we just, we just summarized that what does it mean that the word was with God? Well, since God is a personal being, he relates to us, the Bible tells us. He knows us. He, he, as we heard this morning, he, well, even in the Old Testament, he calls us by name. He called his people by name. Therefore, the word that was with him must also be personal and relational. 
So this word is not just a concept or an idea. This word is personal and relational. To say that the word was with God can only communicate to us a sense of intimacy, of relationship, and even of oneness. To be, What does it mean to be with God from all eternity? Uh, that's mystery. But it is revealed mystery. <laughs> so we, we confess it. This surpasses our comprehension. To say that the word was from all eternity, and even, even just to say that the word was with God. Some people might cl- latch onto that and say, well, then the word must not have been God because the word was with God. But no, to say that the word was with God is to say he partook fully of all that the indivisible God is. That's what that is to say. And so the Apostle John writes in the last part of verse 1, and this is the Greek sense of the emphasis and the word order, and God, the word was. So all the emphasis there is on the deity of the word. All that God is, the word was, and therefore he is today. The word is God's own self-revelation. That's why he's called the word. The word is God's self-revelation. And he is eternally, in a sense, being known, right? We didn't have creatures to be known by, but God was known by himself in some wonderful, mysterious way. If the word was not fully God, brothers and sisters, I ask you this. How could the word have revealed God to us? For who can reveal God to us but God himself? If the word was not fully God, how could he ever reveal God to us? Because who can reveal God to us but God himself? The creation reveals God. We say, well, the creation reveals God. And yet, not because the creation is God, as pantheists would say, Not because the creation is the eternal word, but because the creation came into being through the eternal word. So John writes in verse 3, all things came into being through him, through the word, the self-revelation of God. And without him, not a single thing came into being that has come into being. The word then is the source of all that has come into being, therefore all that has ever come into being must be revealing to us indirectly and in part but still truly the glory of God. Likewise, not only creation but the history of our redemption reveals God. And why is that? Why does the history of redemption reveal God to us? Because it is the eternal word who is active in that history for the redemption of sinners like us. Redemptive history is not simply God working. It is God working through the eternal word for the redemption of sinners. So we read in verses 4 to 5 of John chapter 1, in him, in this eternal word, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. 
So brothers and sisters, this activity of the word in creation, making the world, in our redemption throughout history and unfolding that plan, all of this was revealing to us, again, his eternal deity and Godhead. Because who does the work of creation? Only God creates, calls into existence the things that did not exist, makes from out of nothing all that is. That's exclusively the work of God who is, as our Baptist catechism says, but one only, the living and true God. There is but one only. Thus says Yahweh in Isaiah 45, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Let us jealously, zealously guard that there is one God, One indivisible God who alone creates. And yet when we give to the word this, when we don't give to the word, when we have revealed to us the fact that the word is the one through whom all things come into being. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is not simply a fact of theology that we learn and cover and and master. This This is the object of our worship. Therefore, that word who was with God and through whom all things came into being partakes fully of all, all that the one and only indivisible God is. More importantly, even perhaps in that, we know from the Old Testament that the work of redemption and of salvation is exclusively the work of God. God is jealous about the reality that he is the only Savior Isaiah 43, you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am Yahweh, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you and you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and I am God. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other, which is to say, there is no other God, which is to say, there is no other Savior. Therefore, brothers and sisters, the word is to be worshipped. Worshipped bowed down before, prostrate ourselves before him with the Father and with the Spirit as the only living and true God. Therefore, what this means is that the word is to be praised. He is to be adored. He is to be feared and obeyed by us with the Father and with the Son as the only living and true God, eternal uncreated life light or as the church has confessed from the very from ancient times god of god light of light very god of very god it is true that in and through creation and especially in and through this unfolding plan of redemption the, the world came into existence through the word right It was the word that was active in the unfolding plan of redemption. And so they reveal God to us, those two realities. But God had not yet fully manifested and revealed himself to us so that we are fully knowing him in the word. 
himself. Okay. In a sense, we, we, we could come to know the word in a sense immediately through creation, through the unfolding plan. But brothers and sisters, what a moment when we come to know God in and through the word himself. It is the word himself, not creation, not the unfolding plan of redemption in, in, in that fullest sense, who is the supreme, the full, the final revelation of God. Because it is the word himself who was with God. Who could reveal God to us but the one who was with God? And the one who was and is God. Therefore, it is only in the word himself that we can know God fully. This is eternal life that they may know you and the one whom you have sent, Jesus prayed. And what does it mean to know God fully? Well, certainly not comprehending his infinite, eternal, and unchangeable being, but nevertheless knowing him fully and truly in this sense unto eternal life. That is eternal life, to know him truly, fully. So in verse 9, John spoke of the light coming into the world. And we take for granted, oh, I know what that's about. But, but we haven't got to the point in John where we know what that's about. We read that he, the light came into the world, but what does that mean? In verse 10, he was in the world. What does that mean? In verse 11, he came to his own. In verse 12, we read of those who received him. But all of that, we don't know what it means. To this point, well, that's the hand, that's the blank. We don't know what it might mean. But now we come then to those words, and all of these words are words no uninspired pen could ever have set down to paper. And one, one thing that's beautiful about these words is they're just so simple that you can, you can just meditate on them in each phrase. Tonight, when you're going to sleep, just, just, just meditate. Take a phrase. Think on it in light of the things we talk about here this morning. We come to that great mystery and that truth that is central to, that lies at the heart of our Christianity, that really indeed sets us apart from all other religions, all other faiths. And the word became flesh. Now no natural man can ever or will ever be able to accept that mystery. Because... Sometimes we get so used to it, and we know it's a great mystery, but th- this, is, this is offensive to all the wisdom of humankind. It is not just mysterious, it is offensive. So may we never be careless or irreverent with this mystery, and we never suppose that this is anything less than unthinkable apart from revelation and impossible apart from the unsearchable almighty power of God the word became flesh what's flesh well, let's let's explore this let's think about the mystery because flesh here doesn't just refer to physical flesh or a human body as calvin put it flesh is the part taken for the whole so i am flesh 
I am also, I have a soul, but included in being flesh is that I have a human soul. The lower part includes the whole nature of man, consisting not just of a true human body, but also of a true human soul. This is not, I I am not interested in just church history here, okay? I want to help us to to bow down and worship. Okay, Apollinaris in the 4th century, he taught that the word, this eternal word that we have just been confronted with, that he took the place of a human soul, clothing himself in a human body. So the eternal word came, and as, as that which is not flesh, he came and he garbed himself or clothed himself in a human body with no human soul. He took the place of that human soul. But as one commentator writes, that which was not taken could not be healed. And oh, it is my soul that needs to be healed. Not also my body. If the word had not taken our whole humanity to himself, body and soul, he could not have saved our souls. We see that principle clearly taught in scripture. But let's come back to some other specifics. And, and, and again, the reason that I, I do this is so that we might see more clearly the mystery and wonder of the incarnation and of what it really is. Flesh is a reference to all that a human being is. To the whole human nature, body and soul. So we read in other places in Luke 3, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He's not just talking about a bunch of bodies. He's talking about people. Human souls. John 17, Jesus prays, you have given him authority over all flesh, not just over bodies, but flesh, all flesh, all people, all humankind, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. By works of the law, no flesh, no man, no woman, no child will be justified in God's sight. So when John says the word became flesh, it's a way of referring to all that we are in our frailty, in our weakness. As our flesh groans under the effects of sin in this world. So let's be clear, the word did not become sinful flesh. But it did become, the word became perishable flesh. J.C. Ryle says, he became a man. Like any one of Adam's children, with a nature liable to everything that fallen humanity is liable to except sin. So when we read the word became flesh, we remember this is the flesh of which we read in scripture. All flesh is like grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. That's the flesh that the eternal word took to himself. God remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Let's just be grateful, brothers and sisters, reminding ourselves that Jesus wept. We have cried, we have wept. Jesus did too, with real sorrow, just like we do. After fasting, he was really and truly hungry with the same hunger pains that we feel in the weakness of our flesh. He was wearied from his journey. He had no place to lay his head. He suffered physically, for real. He was distressed. He was anguished in his soul. These are all things that 
We could never predicate of, of God in his eternal, infinite being. Jesus truly died and was buried in the grave. It's because the word became flesh and all that flesh encompasses that he is able to sympathize with you, with your weaknesses. As one who is in every way tried and tempted as we are yet without sin. So the point here, be mindful of this, is not that Jesus was tempted by the twisted and perverse sinful lusts of our fallen sin nature. It's become popular today to blasphemously say that Jesus was tempted with sinful and perverse temptations. That is, that, that is no strong word, strong enough. But the point is that Jesus experienced all the trials and all the temptations that are due to our existence as weak, perishable human beings living in a sin-cursed world. Because he also was a weak and perishable human being living like us in a sin-cursed world. He came into the same world. He didn't live in some other existence than we live in. Or in some other uh, human state than we lived in. And we live in today. So here is scope for unceasing comfort. As we battle daily with the weakness of our own flesh. Today you will battle with it, right? Tomorrow you will battle with it. Every day. And yet he battled in the same way. When Jesus said to his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He wasn't just preaching to them. Yeah, I've got this covered. Now you all need to be praying. What was Jesus doing? He was watching and praying. Because in his state of humiliation, even his flesh was weak. The angels came and appeared to him and were strengthening him, Luke says. Jesus spoke as one of them. As one who knew these things from his own experience of life lived in your handout in the weakness of the flesh. Oh, that's, isn't that scope for unceasing comfort? He spoke as one who was even then falling to the ground and praying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so the writer of Hebrews says, He was made like his brothers, like us, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. And so what we celebrate and rejoice in is this fact that that Jesus is now presently at the right hand of the Father who understands our weaknesses and intercedes for us. He is a high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. But if the word became flesh, or if he became weak, and I think it's helpful to use the language, if he took to himself weak, frail, perishable flesh... Well, then what was he after he did all that? After he took that to himself? Did he then cease to be, in some respect, what he was before? And we don't simply say, no, of course not. No, we say, well, no. But I don't understand that. 
Did he cease to be the eternal word who was with God and who was God? Did he cease to be the one through whom all things came into being and in whom was the life that was the light of men? (laughs) No, the answer is no, not for a single moment. Did the eternal word who became flesh cease to be the eternal word? But we know that because God cannot stop being God. More wonderfully, we know this because of what the Apostle John writes next. And I love it. You know, John has already said that God, the Word, was. But now, to reemphasize that reality, he says it in another way. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. I'll ask you this question Who is it that dwelt among us? Who did? Who is the subject of the verb? It is the word himself who dwelt among us. Whose glory did the apostles see and behold with their own eyes? Whose glory? It was the glory of the eternal word himself now revealed and manifested in the flesh. And so we celebrate this reality that the word was not changed into a human, right? He did not empty himself of anything that he was before or forfeit a single one of the attributes of his deity, all that God is, he still was and will be forever and ever and ever, without diminution or, or, or getting smaller or changing. But he did take to himself a true and complete humanity. Body and soul with the result that, as one commentator says, all of those redemptive categories thus far attributed to the word, eternal word, now apply with the same absoluteness and exclusiveness to the man, Jesus of Nazareth. So we must not think of Jesus as a hybrid of deity and humanity mixed together. And some people say, oh, don't talk about that. Why Why do we have to do that? Let's just... Be happy that Jesus is our Savior. Well, I I can understand that to a point, but then I don't understand it. And I want to help you not to understand that because this is where we go. Our minds are rationalists, and so we go these places. So let's just fall down before the wonder of this mystery. This humanity of Jesus was not a deified humanity. God did not take our humanity and say, now I'm going to deify your humanity as if there could be any such thing. The humanity of Jesus was and will be to all eternity a real and true humanity that is the same as ours. On the other hand, the deity of Jesus was not in any way a humanized deity, as if there could be any such thing, because this is the important point between our humanity between our nature as humans and the deity of the word, there will always remain an infinite gulf. An infinite gulf. The incarnation must not blind us to the infinite distance that there is between humanity and deity. There can be no mixing of these two natures. And yet, we must not therefore think of two separate persons. 
So we go there, right? And we think, well, if there's this infinite gulf between humanity and between deity, then there was a human Jesus coexisting kind of side by side with the eternal word. There was the man Jesus and the eternal word, and somehow they were existing together. And Jesus, though, does not speak of himself as we, but as I. And the biblical writers never speak of Jesus as they, but only of he. And indeed, if there was not one person as our Redeemer, then he could not have suffered for us in our place as the eternal word. (laughs) This mystery. When we worship Jesus, brothers and sisters, do we, ask, we don't ask ourselves, am I worshiping his humanity? Is this idolatry? Or am I worshiping his deity? We are simply worshiping him. Our humanity and the deity of the eternal word, our human nature and his eternal Godhead have been unchangeably These are beautiful words, brothers and sisters, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably united in the one person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here then is mystery before which we bow down. That's why why we enter into those discussions, so that we might bow in worship and trust him as our Sufficient Redeemer. Because apart from the person of who Jesus is, we have no Redeemer. And here in this mystery, carefully fenced and guarded and confessed, is the foundation of our salvation and of all our fellowship and communion with God. John John says, the word dwelt among us. When God was going to come down and dwell among the people of Israel... uh, at Sinai he gave these instructions to Moses let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst you see there already God's purpose in the fullness of time exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture so you shall make it so now when John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us he uses that same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament same word it's used only four times in the New Testament. One other time, in the, one time in the whole Old Testament. He says that the word became flesh and he, 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 the eternal word himself, tabernacled among us as one of us. And so in this way, God imparts to us to reference the hymn, all the blessings of his heaven. What is heaven but the place where God is? The place of the fullness of his joy. The place of the fullness of life itself. And so he imparts to us all the blessings of that heaven. Of his own presence with us and among us. Even all the blessings of himself. All that was only shadowed forth at the tabernacle. And you know you read Exodus and you see all the time and detail and effort put into that tabernacle. Its furniture, its rooms, its dimensions, its materials. And all of that that was shadowed forth in promised form has now become ours in its actual substance. 
in the eternal word tabernacling among us as one of us. We beheld, John says, his glory. The glory of whom? Of the eternal word. So we're reminded again of the tabernacle. When he says his glory, we're reminded of the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord that was so connected with that tabernacle. So in Exodus 29, there at the tent of meeting, I will meet with the people of Israel. I will dwell among them and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And then chapter 40, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. So question, what do we think of when we think of glory? What's glory? What's the glory of God? On the one hand, we know it is, it is the, I think what we often first think of is it's a visible manifestation that we see or that God's people have seen throughout history in, in, in of God's special presence. So in this sense, we can think of his glory as that cloud, that, that fire-inhabited cloud that settled on the tabernacle. But in the end, God's glory is not physical. It's not photons of light that we can perceive with our physical eyes. That's not in the end his glory. What is his glory? What is it? It is the sum total, if we can use language like that, of all the infinite perfections of who he is, just to name a few, of his infinite wisdom. God's infinite wisdom is glory. God's infinite power is glory, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And it is before this glory, not before radiance in and of itself, not before photons of light, it is before this glory, the sum total of the attributes of the perfections of God that we worship. Okay, now, when John then says, and we beheld his glory, He is not talking about the transfiguration on the mountain when his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. John doesn't even tell that story in his gospel. He's not talking about one single isolated moment when for a moment they beheld his glory. But rather the whole scope of Jesus' life and ministry. There is portrayed to us and seen by us the glory of God. He sees the true glory of the eternal word. And we remember this from our journey through John. As much in Jesus' suffering and death. As in his resurrection and ascension. The infinite perfections of the attributes of God. Seen in suffering and death. In resurrection and ascension. There is not a single part of Jesus' life that does not show forth the glory of God. And we know that is so because the word became flesh. The deity of the word was so perfectly united with our true humanity, so perfectly 
that to behold the human Jesus of Nazareth in his words and deeds, in his sufferings and death and resurrection, as we read about it in the Gospel of John, that is to behold, it is to see in all of its fullness the glory of God. That's what it is. So when John says, and we beheld his glory, we're meant to think of another passage from Exodus. John is just recapitulating, as it were, Genesis in creation, and yet fuller, and Exodus with the tabernacle. Creation and redemption, we see them both here fulfilled in Jesus. Exodus 33, Moses said, please show me your glory. And Moses wasn't asking, show me something brilliant. What was he asking? Let me bask in the perfections of who you are most fully. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Yeah. And will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Did you see that? Did you, did you catch that? What does the glory of God consist supremely in? His goodness. His sovereign unmerited grace and mercy to sinners. But you know what that necessarily assumes. That necessarily assumes all of the other attributes of God. So we are not saying by that, therefore, that the glory of God is uniquely and only his goodness. If we, as soon as we say that the glory of God is seen in his goodness, that is to say that it, it is seen in all of his other attributes, including his holiness and justice, because what is God's goodness? What is God's goodness? apart from his holiness and justice. So we read in the next chapter of Exodus, Yahweh descended in the cloud. He stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Or in the Septuagint it says, truth. Truth is a good way for faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Truth, truth in God is simply the reality that he is true. He's true to himself, if we can use that language. And therefore, he is also perfectly, unfailingly true to you. And true to me. In his word and promise. Because God is truth, because he is true, being he is first of all true to himself, he is therefore true to you in his word of promise. And so we understand now that the glory that was only shadowed forth to Moses on the mountain. You say, are we jealous of Moses? Not for a second. Not for a moment. Because that glory that was shadowed forth to him on the mountain when the Lord descended in the cloud has now been fully unveiled to us. That glory has been fully unveiled to us. Revealed to us in all its fullness in Jesus Christ. Which is why John can write, and we beheld his glory Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, 
full. And, and there's, a, there's a meaning to that word there that I think it contains that it could never have contained previously. Full of grace and truth. I love what Linsky writes. He says, John repeats glory. We beheld his glory. Glory. Investing it with emphasis as if he would say, glory indeed. Glory most wonderful. Here again then, the glory of the Lord consists supremely in his goodness. In his sovereign and unmerited mercy and grace to sinners. And I would say, I I feel like maybe I need to say that somehow. The glory of the Lord consists supremely in his goodness insofar as that is where we apprehend it most fully. But we remember then too that as we apprehend that glory in his goodness, that, that goodness can have no ultimate meaning apart from all of the rest of his infinite perfect attributes. When John says, and we beheld his glory, who is his we? It is not you, and it's not me. When he says, and we beheld, he is speaking, first of all, of all the eyewitnesses who walked with Jesus in the flesh, because he did, in the flesh, while he was tabernacling among us. But then that that same we is an invitation. When John says, and we beheld his glory, he's not saying, and we did, but sorry, you can't. No, there's an invitation in those words. There's an invitation to me and to you to join in beholding his glory ourselves. As we read in the rest of John's gospel, and certainly broader out than than John's gospel, the whole Old Testament and New Testament as we read in the pages of Scripture now of the words and deeds of the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What's the miracle of Christmas, right? The miracle of Christmas is that we, is that God, the God who said to Moses, you cannot see my face For no man can see me and live. And you know what? When we hear those words, we despair. Because if we cannot see God, if we cannot see God's face, how can we have life? How can we have redemption? There seemed to be no hope except for the promise of God. God said to him, You shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. That God who said that to Moses is now the God who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We can never know God in his essence. And to be confronted with God like that would indeed mean immediate death for creatures that we are. And yet in the face of Christ apprehended now not yet not yet in the flesh but in the face of Christ apprehended by that faith that the spirit works in our hearts that we talked about last week we do see and we do and we are beholding and we may behold fully 
the unveiled glory of God, the perfect faithfulness of God to himself and to that word of promise that he has given to us. That he spoke through the Old Testament and that he has now spoken to us supremely in his son, Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, as many as are the promises of God, and you get the point, don't, don't try counting, because that's beside the point. Right? As many as are the promises of God in him, in Christ, they are all now, yes. In Jesus, the eternal word, become flesh, is fully manifested to us the glory of God. We know what that glory is now. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So have you seen in this Jesus, and do you see in this Jesus, your infinitely sufficient and perfect Savior? It's a miracle. I, I pray that the, that the Holy Spirit works that in us. That we don't just give the simple correct answer, but that it, 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 it comes from the deepest part of who we are by God's grace. And so we come to the next question before we read these closing passages. Are you and am I daily, and here's the word that, that we're going to sing in a moment, behold our God, Are you daily beholding him? And one wonderful way to behold him is just to quote to yourself these verses. And to behold him then means, are you daily worshiping him? Are you daily delighting yourself in him? Because that's just a fact. How can you behold him and not worship? How can we behold him and not delight ourselves in him? But we all, says Paul, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, as in a very excellent mirror, (laughs) until we see him face to face, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Spend time beholding him that you might not be the same. This is Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 3. We behold him not through some mystical exercise. We behold him now, today, through the hearing of the word preached. We behold him as we go through the week, as we meditate on the scriptures by the aid and enablement of his indwelling spirit. And so we look to the day when, as the Apostle John says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not been manifested as yet what we will be. But we know that when he is manifested, we will be like him because we will see him. We will behold him, our Redeemer, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, just as he is. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do um, bow down before you at the wonderful mystery of our Redeemer. A mystery in the sense that that we could never have known it or conceived it or thought it possible except that you have revealed this truth to us. How dependent we are upon that word of revelation. How dependent we are too 
upon the work of your spirit, that spirit of revelation that not only inspires the words of scripture, that not only enabled the conception of the eternal word in the womb of the Virgin Mary, that not only anointed Jesus at his baptism, but that spirit that now does that work in us, opening our eyes to see and to behold this Jesus and to truly trust in him day to day as the redeemer who is suited to meet all of our needs to reconcile us to you our holy God to treat with you as as, as God himself and, and yet to lay his hand upon us We thank you, Lord, that this Redeemer has suffered and died and shed his blood for us. And then that he now lives again, always interceding for us at your right hand. Help us as we come to this table to rejoice now, to worship, to behold. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.